Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm here today with uh, Keith Mitnick, renowned trial lawyer from Orlando, Florida, senior trial counsel at Morgan & Morgan, author of the best-selling author uh, book, Don't Eat the Bruises. How you doing today, Keith? I'm doing good. How about you, Brian? I'm doing all right. I'm always good when I'm with you. Yes, sir. I want to have a little conversation here for lawyers and people that are learning about it. Why do you think, or do you think, that voir dire is the most important part of the trial? It, pretty straightforward. You can't. Uh, you can be the most silver-tongued lawyer, most persuasive guy ever born to do this job, but if you're trying to convince people who already had kind of made up their mind, they don't like your side, they like the other side, you don't have a chance. It's you go, you go in politics and you try to convince someone who likes Trump, he's a bad president, I don't care what you evidence you bring, you don't have a chance, and vice versa. You take someone who doesn't like Trump and you try to convince him he's really doing a good job, you can marshal in all the evidence in, 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 that you can possibly find. It ain't gonna change it. Now those are extremes, but, Subtle bias has a profound impact, and here's the simple reason why. It's a contested event. So the other side is going to be presenting evidence, and you're going to be presenting it, and if somebody comes to it who thinks they're fair and honest, and they generally are a good human being, but they've already leaned in this way, the other side, you can bet, is going to present enough evidence for them to go, see, that's what I was expecting that their evidence has a leg up. And it's hard enough in this war we're in to have the decision makers already looking for proof to prove what they already brought to court in their mind. So, so you, you gotta things, eliminate bias. Two things, number one, how do you find out who these leaders are that have this implied bias and what do you do about it? Uh, the first thing is, well, of course, you gotta ask the questions to find them and you got, there are two ways to do it. One of them is a very targeted question where you come in and ask specific questions. How many of you have feelings against a motorcycle driver? You think if you get on the back of that motorcycle and you're not wrapped in the metal cage of the car that protects you and you get hurt out in the crash and you're now bringing a lawsuit over your injuries, you're already gonna be at least partially at fault because you assume the risk. How many of you feel like that to any degree? And you find out who they are and then you follow up with, in light of this, in this honor system, would it be fair to say that you'd have a hard time telling the judge and assuring the judge that you can be completely fair and impartial under these circumstances? You do your best, but honestly, it might impact you, no matter how hard you try. That's one way. The other way is you ask more open-ended questions. It's a motorcycle crash case, and we're going to be suing for millions and millions of dollars, and I need to know, it. what are your feelings and your thoughts on a case like that? How do you feel? We need to know. And look, you've got your beliefs. You don't surrender your beliefs because you got a jury summons and walked in this room. You got an absolute right to those beliefs. We just need to know what they are. How many of you have some feelings against that? Let's talk about it. And you just get them going. And some of that's going to depend on the amount of time you got with a particular judge. If you got time, then you may want to him talk more and learn more. If you're on a tight time budget, then target it and go get it and see if you can't get people on this uh, self kind of self-reporting system where you lay it out in a way they, they acknowledge it and get you a fair fight. How do you go about convincing a jury or opening them up 
to the concept of bias existing? What, what, give me an example. Yeah, that's a great question because there you, you're not going to have all day to give them a, a like a, a, a lecture on how a little bit of bias would have a profound impact under these circumstances. You're just not going to get up and have a big discussion and educate them. So how do you do it? Well, you got to do it like this. And the best way I've found to do, and it's a big part of the first section of my book, is use a little analogy that brings the point home that a subtle bias can have a powerful impact on the most honest person unintentionally. Doesn't make them a bad person, makes them a human being. And here, let me give you an example. Good morning, my name's Keith Mitnick. If, if, if we were having, a, as the judge told you, my name's Keith Mitnick and I represent Ms. Jones here. And I'm going to be asking you some questions about life experiences or opinions that you have that could potentially impact you if you just sit on the case. Create a bit of points of friction over the type of case it is. We all have subjects that there was a debate on and we were asked to judge it, that we come to the debate with some feelings that could, could impact us from the start. For example, if we were having a competition to see who had the best pies, and it was down to two pies, and one of them was apple and one of them was cherry, and I was randomly picked out of the audience to be the judge. And it just so happens I'm not crazy about cherry pie. How many of you think the contestants would want to know that, particularly the one with cherry pie? Everybody will raise their hand. Does everyone agree the only right thing for me to do under those circumstances would be to reveal that and let the contestants decide what to do with it? Everybody will go yes. Likewise, does everyone agree that not only would it be the right thing for me to reveal it, but it would also be the right thing for me to be soul search and be honest with myself about the potential impact it might have in spite of my best effort to put that aside. Not that I would take some succulent, wonderful pie over here that happened to be filled with cherry and a dried up sorry pie that happened to be filled with apple and pick the apple. I wouldn't do that. But all else equal, when I bite into the cherry pie, my lip kind of curls a little, I can't help it. That's the way I'm wired. So does everyone agree that it would also be the right thing to do to, to be honest with myself and not sugarcoat the potential impact in my day? Because maybe I'm better off down the hall judging the chili. I pretty much like all the chili. And all the jurors will instantly get it. And you add one little piece, one little piece. If I were to say to the contestants, honestly, in honor system here, I need to opt out because I can't assure you I could be completely fair and impartial. I try my best, but honestly, it's tough because that's where I'm wired. How many of you would think if I said that to contestants that I would sound either unfair or weak-minded? And they all go, no. Would everyone think I did the honorable right thing? They acknowledge that and we go, yes. Well, great. This case got nothing to do with something as frivolous as pie contest. This is a serious business. So let's talk about it. Then you roll into it. And I'm telling you, they will. you will watch the lights go on. They're kind of entertained, number one. But number two, they now understand it. And the decent people are going to say, yeah, you know, kind of like the pies. As soon as you go, now this case involves a car crash or motorcycle crash or medical malpractice, whatever it involves. Some people have feelings against it. I need to know how many, it might come into play some, in, intent, not intentionally. So that's out. Okay, so you mentioned your book. What made you write a book? What made me write a book? I'll tell you honestly, I was one of the fortunate ones that, that landed with two outstanding lawyers and teachers who, who tr 
taught me so much as a baby lawyer. And you wouldn't believe I had long hair hanging down to here and I had a 32 inch waist. And if the old me walked in, you wouldn't believe that was me. But in those formative baby years, I had some badass teachers showing me how to do it and throwing me in there with them to do it, not just watching and carrying a briefcase, doing it and learning with them. And I, at this point in my career, now 34 years of it, I realized that's not the norm. I was so fortunate. And I thought, you know what? I'm a natural thinker. I'm not good at a lot of stuff, but I happen to be very good at this. And I'm in a unique position with my job to try lots of cases. So when I got an idea, I get to go try it out right away, not a year later and I've forgotten about it. And the combination of that is I've come up with a bunch of good stuff. And I thought, what about all those lawyers that didn't get that opportunity? And I thought, I've got an obligation, a calling to pass that on to people that are on the same side fighting the same good fight against the same crooks on the other side. And so I wanted to put it in a book. How do you get it out there? Well, I give seminars all over the country, but there are, you know, 100 people in the room. How do you get it to the masses of people that are like-minded doing good work? And I thought, I'm going to put it in a book. Rick Friedman actually introduced me. He heard some seminar of mine said, introduced me to trial guides. And I put it all together so I could pass the torch. And honestly, when I'm in my grave, I'm going to remember big verdicts. Trust me, I'm going to be going down clicking them off my head. It matters. But I'm going to remember that whatever help I've done to pass it on to others, like it was passed on to me, I'm going to close my eyes and they're going to close the casket. I'm going to have a smile on my face. Well, thanks for doing that for all the lawyers. Myself, I obviously rely on it quite often. Babe Ruth is known as the home run king. It's also not as well known that he was the strikeout king. Does that apply to trial lawyers? Absolutely. Uh, it, one of the hardest lessons for a lawyer. When I was young, I started out on a big time role. And I thought, I'm never going to lose a case. I'm just not going to lose a case. And for too long, I did. And um, I hope I don't lose many of them. But over the years, I lose them. And I, I'm going to keep losing them as much as I hate to say that outside out loud. And one thing I know is this, if you don't have the courage to lose, you ought not be in this business. Here's the only thing heals a loss though. I will say this, because you're going to lose and you got to be willing to take it. You can't go in expecting it for God's sake. You got to go in believing. Believing is three fourths of it. Believe, believe, believe. But you also got to know losing doesn't mean stop believing. It just means you got a bad juror on there. Maybe you learned a lesson from it and you, you ought to be chomping at the bit to get back in there again, to get that stink off of you. But I can tell you this, there's only one thing heals. Cause I suffer like, like I, I'm sure I don't Hell, Brian says trialers lose. I never hear Brian losing a damn thing, but I bet he has. And the I fact have. of the, the I fact have. of the matter is, I bet Brian will tell you, there's only one way to cleanse it, because it doesn't just evaporate. You get back in again. Another and one minute. other thing. One other thing. I know this. When I've lost, what pulls me out of that dark hole is I start thinking, what can I do to minimize the chances of ever having to do this again? And some of my best creativity hasn't come from wins. It's come from fact. Don't eat the bruises. I hate to say this on a 
podcast, but it's true. Don't Eat the Bruises is a book full of losses. And I just learned how not to let that happen to me again or how to, not maybe, not because I've messed up, but because there was something I could create to do a better so the, the tr dirty tricks didn't work so well or better at picking that jury so I didn't have a, a ringer for the defense. So well, that, that, that brings it back to it. I mean, as we've talked about at the beginning, as we're going to talk about here at the end, it's all about the jury. And the jury's the one that's going to decide the case. And, you know, you heard the, the phrase preaching to the choir. Well, you may not be preaching to the choir. So tell me, what do you think are the key selection data that you're looking for to make that determination as to who the jurors that you want to go with? And in Florida, you need how many jurors? In Florida, we have a unanimous six. Now, six I try them all six. over. So I know and six out of six. So unanimous California, we only need nine out of 12. So I, I would think I try case in Tennessee, Brian, and they, and it's unanimous 12. It's hard to get 12 tough. people to agree on someone's name. So tell me, how do you, what do you go about doing? What are, what are the keys that if you had five keys that to, to follow in the jury selection? I know it all changes, but what do you think? Well, I think you first have to get general bias you know, feelings against the particular, you know, I don't like personal injury. I don't like pain and suffering. I don't Lawsuit like law. yeah, the general bias against the case. And then case specific biases like motorcycle, motorcycle. not wearing a helmet, not having a seatbelt on alcohol. alcohol. The guy was drinking. I tried a case with someone who was drunk as a skunk was the plaintiff. We got a big verdict only because of the hard work we did in Boy Dyer because the righteous verdict. My person was minding their own business in their lane, not speeding, doing nothing wrong, and someone in a big flatbed pulled out from behind a big bush right smack in front of them with no time to react. But they put the keys behind the ignition. They were drunk. The only way we got to it is to ask people, how many of you feel someone puts the keys in the ignition and turns it and drives down the road where other people on the road and they're drunk? I'm not talking about like technically overlay. I'm talking about drunk. And they get in a crash and they get hurt. And they brought a lawsuit. How many of you feel? No way. Not on my watch. No matter what the evidence shows as to whether the alcohol had anything to do with it. The mere fact they got under behind that wheel and then follow up after all those people went for cause. Follow up with how many of you feel they're at least partially at fault, no matter what the evidence shows as to whether they actually did anything wrong other than have the drinks. And I got rid of a bunch more and the people left were ready to look at the real evidence and they were hurt. So general bias, specific bias, then you got to deal with some of the law, the burden of proof issues. Um, if you've got an aggravation of a pre-existing condition, those type of laws that may be vicarious liabilities hot one. People hate the idea of a parent being held responsible because their kid or a small business owner because of the employee. So you, you cover the kind of law bias questions. Those, that's three of them. And then you got to find the leaders. Because look, if you end up How do you do that? How do you find uh, the leaders? There are multiple ways. One way is I'm a believer in having uh, these services that do background searches on your jurors. That they, they don't even have to come to the courtroom. You just have someone there, they train and show how, and they snap a picture of the names of the jurors, and boom, you're starting to get background information. What do they vote? How do they vote? How often? What clubs are they on? And you'll learn things you would never learn in a live Bordier that it's very informative in making those hard decisions. So that's part of it. The other part of it is getting them talking and seeing which one of them seem to have a relationship with you who doesn't. Another one is I like to simply find out 
have, have they been in a position where they've been managers of people or, or, or supervisors? Have they hadn't been an elected job, whether it's their, their sorority, fraternity, their homeowners association? Have they ever been a four-person? I don't care so much if they've been a juror. Have they ever been a four-person? Now you know they're leaders. Are they in a position, ask yourself, are they in a position where they generally boss people around and tell them what to do? Legal secretaries are leaders. 911 operators are leaders. Of course, doctors and nurses and teachers are leaders. So I want to know because typically you're going to have a, a couple of them. You're going to have to wring your hands on which one do I use that last peremptory on who I didn't get them all for cause. And I'd rather have a stinker that's a follower than a maybe stinker who's a leader. It's just too dangerous. They can they can turn the whole group against you. So that's essential, finding that data out through live questions and background information so you can make your best decision. Let me, let me, let me ask follow up with this. How is it that lawyers around the country can work together to share this information and have a better chance when they go pick a jury? Um, well, I think one thing is podcasts just like this or books or, you know, I know Brian, you and I have talked to, talk together to groups of lawyers. And I think part of it is the collective wisdom and knowledge in, in the sharing. I think the, the organizations of trial lawyer association, justice associations is good. These listservs are good. So they're awful good ways for us to share because none of us have all the answers. All of a lot of the, the, those of us that are successful have good ideas. And my idea may not work with someone else. Brian's way may work. It has to be your own per it has to work for you. And it's, it's, what, it's it, good for you. Amen. I, I see people all the time and then I think they said I got a thing like my pie that's mustard based. It's kind of corny. It works for me. I really I'm a, a barbecue guy. And I hear someone else say they did the barbecue and I look at them and see you any barbecue in your whole damn life and I think God I wish you wouldn't do that. It's gotta be real. It's gotta be you. You take well, you gotta watch out with using sports with women jurors. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, You're like I don't, uh, I don't want my husband watching a football. I got to hear about it here now. Dead on. I'm not even thought of that. There you go. There's Sharon right here in the middle of this podcast. I'll think about that for the rest of my life. All right. I want to, I want to wrap it up here. I'm a young lawyer. I want to, I'm trying my first case. What, how do I get prepared? What do I read? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? Let me tell you the first thing I do, I'm gonna give you a little, a little pep talk to the younger lawyers. Remember this, it's not about being pretty. And I don't mean whether you're handsome or a pretty lady. I'm talking about it's not about perfection in the courtroom. And you wanna be perfect. You don't wanna feel like I was sloppy in my boss or my colleagues or even the court reporter and the judge and the bailiff are going, well, that was sloppy. You want it to be perfect. When you're young, it's not going to be perfect. It's just not. This is a job that takes repetitive over over and experience and instincts come from making bad decisions and good and it starts becoming more automatic. You're not going to have that early. Here's the good news. You don't need it. It's not about being pretty. You know what it's about? It's about being prepared, having thought through and having a good game plan and picking the right words and phrases, asking winning questions of the jury framing your case upright. And you know where all that happens? There is no bright lights of the courtroom. You can do it 
at peace and you can make a mistake and guess what? Nothing bad happens. Talk to people and you go, boy, that sounded good. It's a dumb idea. Guess what? No harm, no foul. There comes a sports analogy. No harm, no foul because nobody was there from the jury. So you can take the time and you know what else matters? There's the being prepared. And one more thing, believing. That's what I was going to say. Your integrity. Number one thing is if you don't believe it, the jury's never going to believe it. Absolutely. So and you walk you in God. And you got that passion. It's going to go a long way towards community. Amen. You walk in young, but you walk in believing, passionate, and have some integrity. And you know what? All the little sloppiness is charming. Because they know you care. They know you believe. And you came with a good game plan. And guess what? 30 years later, when it is pretty, it ain't going to make a lick of difference other than people will talk about you. And that's fun. You like the pat on the back with that jury win or lose the key you have in your hand right now, be ready, believe and be passionate. And then yeah. that jury is going to say, couldn't oh, have said it better. Thank you so much. And uh, we could do this all day. Hope to do it I again. Wish we could. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you for having me, Brian. Best Appreciate lawyer in America. It.